Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, at the start of the 12th century, writes Rowan Doran, Western European rulers almost never resorted to the collective expulsion of wrongdoers from their domains. Ecclesiastical authorities evinced little concern about the Jewish communities living under Christian rule, and the church's efforts to repress usury focused largely on clerics who engaged in money lending. By the late 13th century, expulsion had become a recurring tool of royal governance in both England and France. Bishops across Latin Christendom were advocating for harsh restrictions on Jewish life, and popes, theologians, and canon lawyers had recast usury as menacing the whole of society. Why and how these dramatic changes came about is the focus of Doran's new book, No Return, Jews, Christian Usurers, and the Spread of Mass Expulsion in Medieval Europe. There is much in it which will overturn casual assumptions and provoke new perspectives on the present. For if the use of expulsion by governments has a beginning, its ending has certainly not yet been achieved. Rowan Doran is a assistant professor of history at Stanford University. No Return is his first book. Rowan, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al, for having me. It's great to be here. So let's begin with the anecdote, the fantastic anecdote with which you begin the book. And let's just relate the anecdote, and then I will do my best to tease it out, and then you will explain to me how I'm wrong in interesting ways. Okay. There is a bishop of the city of Liège in what is now Belgium in around 1300 named Adolf von Waldeck. And he gets very upset about the fact that there are moneylenders in his city. Uh, he's offended by their presence. He's offended by their usurious practices, uh, as he claims. And so as chroniclers later re uh, report, um, he puts on his fancy regalia. He marches out of his house. He gathers his retinue around him. He marches through the city to the doors of the moneylenders, um, breaks down the door of their house, and drives these moneylenders from the city, quote, like dogs. So goes the report. So I read that, and with a whatever, not a, a semi-understanding of the Middle Ages, I say moneylenders must be Jewish. Um, so we're talking a, a guy I respect, University of Chicago PhD, did his dissertation on late 18th century uh, British politics, recently heard him say that um, in medieval Europe, the Jews were the only people engaged, allowed to engage in banking and in lending for interest. So obviously, these people must be Jews. And, and that, it's compounded by the fact that they're called dogs, which is a very common anti-Semitic sort of stereotype, um, probably used probably to the present. I don't read Twitter enough to know, or those parts of Twitter. So these are obviously Jews being expelled from Liege by this bishop. Uh, it's, a po it's a pogrom. And in fact, they are Christians. They are, and in fact, they are Christians, which is you know the, the, the surprising thing. This is not a pogrom. What's even uh, more interesting is that these moneylenders are accused of having poisoned the bishop who dies right after this, which again is a trope we might associate with you know Jews in the Middle Ages. Um, but they're Christians, uh, these moneylenders. And in fact... Christian money lending is widespread. It is uh, practiced by many different sort of figures in many different parts of Europe um, who identify as Christians. Uh, and this is one of the sort of those widespread myths about the Middle Ages, that, um, that money lending was somehow just a Jewish activity, which it was not. So you, B, 
became interested in this topic, as I recall from reading the book, uh, when you started seeing Lombards being expelled and you thought, wait a second, what's going on here? Absolutely. So I was, I was reading a letter. Um, actually, it was, it was an expulsion order and it was aimed at uh, foreigners who came from Italy. And often when these foreigners were engaging in professional money lending, they get called by the name Lombards or Coercens. What's interesting about the word Lombard um, is that it comes to mean pawn shop in a lot of European languages, including Yiddish. So the Yiddish word for pawn shop is in fact Lombard, um, which I think is kind of ironic. And um, I was reading this expulsion order and I was reading through it thinking, you know, there's nothing in here that would flag that it's about Christians as opposed to Jews until you get to sort of the actual sentence, you know, and therefore we expel. But all the rhetoric, all the yada, 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 they're doing these things, it seemed interchangeable with the sorts of accusations we find against Jews that is being wielded against Christians. And so I thought, hmm, this is odd. And I began hunting for more of these expulsions of Christian moneylenders, um, which then became sort of the, the, the impetus for the first part of the research for this book. And then it eventually grew from there. Well, let's talk first about, about lending in the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, as I was saying to you, I love talking to people about credit. Um, I probably have a, <laughs> a higher percentage of, of conversations about books about credit than I than I realized I would have when I started the podcast, uh, because credit encompasses so much of social and cultural interaction. Uh, it's trust. It's uh, it's thinking about the future. It's maybe fears about and regrets about the past. It's a it's a wonderful nexus of different things that come together. So. In 1100, when we when you start the study, that's, that's right. Um, first of all, who needs money? To who needs money lent to them? Um, it, it, because you know, if I was a hardcore Marxist, I might say, well, no one needs that in 1100. This is this is the feudal era. Uh, this right. this sort of thing doesn't happen until later. Until you know. So there's two parts of the question, right? There's there's who needs credit and there's who needs money. And if we think about sort of money as being coined, that can be a separate part of this question of kind of like sometimes there are societies in which it's just hard to get your hand on coin and you need coin to pay whatever, you know, like taxes. Early America this, classic is the classic yeah. for that, yeah. Exactly, right. And, 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 and of course, these societies come up with, you know, tokens and all sorts of other ways around this. But sometimes you just need to get your hands on coin and then you need to find people who will supply it to you. So there's, you know, most human societies, I think, um, end up needing credit, people end up needing credit in some form. And that's certainly true in 1100. Um, but what's interesting is what's happening really sort of starting in the 11th century, you know, sort of trickling a little bit earlier, coming out of a sort of post-Roman collapse, and then picking up steam around 1100 into 1200 and 1300, is that the European economy is starting to start revving its engine. And so this is a world in which we're seeing increasing urbanization, increasing commercialization, and increasing monetization. And these things obviously sort of very much go together. And one of the things that happens, of course, with urbanization um, is that, well, let's, let's say you're living in the countryside. You're sort of a, a middling peasant in the countryside or, or you're sort of a, a small landowner. You're going to be embedded in local networks of sort of power and patronage. Um, if you need sort of, you know, a, a helping hand, you might turn to, you know, the local lord um, or a local monastery. You're sort of embedded in this network of sort of relationships. But as people begin moving into cities, those sorts of things break down, right? And so you, you get the rise of a need for sort of impersonal lending networks where you don't necessarily, you can't sort of just turn to your neighbors. You may not know your neighbors. And that starts to drive um, a rise in the need for impersonal lending. It's the, it's, the, it's the conundrum of credit 
throughout history is how do I safely lend money to someone exactly. who I don't know? Exactly. And so what we end up with, of course, is- yeah, it's what, That's what the, the credit card solves that problem too. But people have been dealing with this question for a lot longer. Absolutely. So pawnbroking, of course, is one way that uh, that gets resolved. You don't need to know the person. Um, they just need to have some sort of collateral that they'll bring to you. And in urban contexts, of course, pawnbroking becomes very important because usually these aren't people who have sort of you know land necessarily that they can provide as collateral. So pawnbroking becomes very important uh, in this period, and it's practiced um, by again by Jews and by Christians. But 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 you know, getting back to your first the first part of the question, kind of you know, what do we all need money for? Um, obviously, there's borrowing for investment uh, when you are going to sort of you know you want to send a ship off to to you know, Cairo or Alexandria, let's say, and you want to you know, do that. That is one kind of credit that one might need that you sort of need to borrow money. And that's a very specific kind of investment borrowing that falls outside of the sort of things I'm interested in in my book, because by and large, nobody is borrowing at 43% a year interest rates to do sort of a long-term investment. So there are other structures for uh, sort of, let's say, setting up partnerships um, between people to borrow from one and, and work with the capital of another that are not the sorts of kind of I need money for a week, for two weeks, for a month, for three months um, that the people that I'm talking about are providing. So let's say you're a bishop. You need to pay a lump sum to Rome. You've just been elected to office and now you got to sort of pay your tax because you've just been sort of named bishop. Uh, maybe you don't have, you know, 2,000 pounds on hand and you just sort of find it from somewhere. Or you're a knight and you need a new horse. You're short on cash. Or you're a merchant and your daughter's getting married, but you blew her dowry on some ship that went down. Um or you're a moderately well-off blacksmith, but you're short on cash to pay your taxes. All of these people might end up needing relatively sort of short-term loans. Now, of course, they all assume they be short-term. Often, as we know with these stories, they compound and they compound and they compound and then we get sob stories. And that's what drives a lot of antipathy towards moneylenders. And so they end up going to often um, what we might think of as professional moneylenders, people who specialize um, in providing credit to anyone as opposed to just the friends and the, their dependents in their network. And these, and these professional moneylenders, are they ever not pawnbrokers? Um, or is there always, are they always essentially what we would see as pawnbrokers because they're requiring something as collateral, something, some chattel good, I guess, as a, as a collateral? So it depends on where you are. There are parts of Europe, for instance, in England, where it becomes possible, essentially, because of royal regulation, that you don't, in fact, need to have collateral for the loan. So a lot of Jewish loans are basically backed by royal authority, um, that the crown will, in fact, intervene to uh, force the borrower to sort of hand something over. Uh, now, that doesn't mean, of course, there is Jewish lending that's happening in 13th century England that is pawnbroking, absolutely. But we actually have very few records of that because you don't need to produce sort of paper documents for pawnbroking. You know, someone gives it to you, you put a tag on the item, they come back, they reclaim it. So a lot of the evidence we have um, for money lending, in fact, concerns relatively large amounts and sometimes backed by official authority as opposed to any sort of tangible collateral. And, and it depends on where you are in Europe. Uh, that's sort of, let's say, the most sophisticated systems. Um, other places uh, in, in Germany and Austria in the 13th century, it's still very much operating on collateral um, and when my Christian moneylenders that I, that I really got interested in at the beginning, when they start coming out from Southern France, Northern Italy, by and large, they are, uh, running pawn shops. Uh, in some cases, I mean, very fancy pawn shops, the things that they are being, that are, that, that are being pawned, you know, sort of crown jewels and elaborate sort of silks and scarves. So it's, it's not just sort of someone's, you know, sort of old nightgown. Um, these can be very, very elaborate, uh, pawn shop operations. So, and, and do we know, 
what per, I mean, I, I'm interested in, in, it's probably impossible to know what percentage uh, of this trade is, of, of lending is Jewish and what percentage is Christian. Um, but do you have a, do you have a guesstimate? Yeah, again, it's very much dependent on region. So if you're in um, the low countries, in fact, there were almost no Jews living in much of the low countries throughout most of this period, up until sort of 1300, and, and, and when, when there are some Jews that sort of move into Flanders. Um, and, and, and there are some, a few communities in Brabant, but not very many. It's almost entirely being done by Christians. Uh, if you are in the Mediterranean world, if you were in Italy or southern France, you're in Catalonia, it is often sort of split. Again, it changes over time, but it's very much something that Christians are doing, that Jews are doing alongside them. There are places um, and times where uh, it is, it is a, let's say pawnbroking is predominantly done by local Jews, um, but there will be cities, you know, just you know, a few kilometers away or maybe entirely by Christians. And we can actually sort of, okay, we can occasionally see this based on where there are lending licenses being given. Um, and, and there are there also, I should say, there are times when there are sort of Christians and Jews lending side by side, and then there's actually some competition. Uh, so medieval Paris, you know, you might go let borrow money from the Jews and you might go borrow money from the Lombards and who you go borrow from uh, is going to depend on obviously sort of you know, where you are, who you borrow from in the past, uh, who you have relations with and, you know, what what they're charging and eventually we get some specializations there are t- there are certainly places where we see certainly by 14th by 15th century germany for instance where christian money lenders are by and large lending larger sums to fancier people and jews are lending smaller sums to poorer people but that is a late development it's not something that we see in most earlier places so it really is all jumbled up depending on where you are two more questions um who are the lombards probably like um I would imagine a Northern European way of saying Italian, um, <laughs> yes. uh, so that it's it could be anywhere from Northern Italy, uh, I suppose. Um, is that right, or do we have? Do you have? Do in your research, do you have a read on who's involved in this? Mm-hmm. Are they merchants that come looking for something else and say, "Oh, I think this," you know, the the business of lending money at interest is a good is the business I should be in here. So great question. One of the things that makes the research hard is that yeah. Lombard is used both to describe pretty much anybody who's a merchant from Italy and also, also. anybody who is a professional Christian moneylender from somewhere else. Uh, and so now most of those, so some of them, for instance, come from Southern France. Uh, yeah. Most of them do come from Northern Italy. And there a lot of them come from a very small region of Piedmont, um, which was sort of occasionally called Lombardy in the Middle Ages. Confusingly, there is now a Lombardy in Northern Italy, which is where Milan is. Piedmont is next to it. Um, but this area was all kind of comprehensively called Lombardy in the Middle Ages. And there's towns called Asti. Oh. Um, and Alessandro Asti Spumanti, the famous sort of yes. sparkling sweet wine. Um, that is, in fact, where many, many, many of these Christian moneylenders come from. Uh, and they end up all over the place. They're throughout the Rhineland, they're throughout northern France, the Low Countries, England. They... So you're telling me that there's like a social network out of Asti that leads people like it's a classic immigrant story of, you know, I know someone, I, I know a stupid brother-in-law who's uh, lending in Mainz. I'll go work with him. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. And these are family-run businesses usually, and we can track the families. And it'll be so-and-so and his brothers and then their children and the inheritance of family running these things. We also There's also political complications because like many Italian cities in the Middle Ages, Asti gets riven by sort of factional complex uh, conflicts. And so you'll have periods in which 
all of those who are aligned with sort of one faction all sort of leave and they are sort of, you know, living abroad, making money. And then their faction wins the local battle and they come back and the other side goes off. So you can actually track the changing fortunes. Um, as, I as I recall, Asti is one of the many, many battlegrounds for the uh, the uh, War of the Lombard League. And, and It uh, is. Barbarossa. It is. It's also a beautiful city and there's wonderful yeah. food and wonderful wine. And one of the best things about this research was the very <laughs> first conference that I ever went to on the Lombards was sponsored by the Piedmontese Wine Growers Association. And let me yeah. recommend to anybody who's interested in like historical research, like go and like choose an area where the conference will be sponsored by like wine associations because it was delicious. I uh, thank you for your forthright enthusiasm for combining the pleasure of being an Asti. I once uh, a colleague was saying, well, I, I do my research in Barbados, but I don't, it's not like I have time to go to the beach. And it's like, I'm always in the archive. And I said, okay, all right. No, I firmly um, believe in immersing yourself in, in the culture <laughs> in which you are studying and all of its richness and glory. Exactly. Um, you, what we should briefly say, what are the state of Jewish communities? And even though this is not, this is part of this book, but it's not key. It's not the key part of the book. We're, we're getting to that. Um, what are the state of Jewish communities in Western Europe? Um, you know, I think I have a rusty memory that the last record of Jewish land ownership in Western Europe is like the South of France in the ninth century. Um, so Jews don't own, are, are probably, are they prohibited from owning land by this point? So again, again, it depends where you are. Certainly Jews definitely own lots of urban properties. Yes. Um, and there are parts of uh, Mediterranean Europe where mm-hmm. Jews have rural land holdings. They are, you know, sort of, you know, managing farms and they're growing wine, uh, grapes, yeah. and they are, you know, doing all the other things that everybody else around them is doing. Um, Northern Europe. So let's say um, England, Northern France, the Rhineland. The Jewish communities there are fairly young. Most of them come after the year 1000, um, in some cases after the year 1100. So these are Jewish communities that are migrating northwards from the Mediterranean world um, and moving up. By and large, in search of new economic opportunities, these are areas that are starting to have you know, their commercial um, pulse quickening. And in many cases, we have local rulers, bishops, other lords, who will sort of extend an invitation to Jewish communities and say, would you please come settle in my town, in my city, and I'll give you certain privileges. And we have a lot of these documents that survive that show the negotiations between these, these rulers, these authorities, um, and the new Jewish communities over sort of what they want, what they're concerned about, what they want to have in return for settling there. So there's this, this image we have when we talk about Jewish history, um, that it's all sort of, you know, Jews fleeing persecution to go to new places. But this is one of those periods, um, which is actually true through much of sort of Jewish history, when Jews are actively seeking out sort of new opportunities and they are being sort of welcomed to these places and they are sort of enthusiastically heading to these new places. So it's like, how can I attract a sports, sports franchise to my city or how absolutely. can I attract a Jewish community? To absolutely. My this is seen as like, this is going to be my ticket to success. And, you know, a lot of these early Jewish communities are not engaged in any sort of meaningful way in money lending. They're doing, uh, uh, they're facilitating trade they might be engaging in, engaging in money changing, which uh, is actually one of those things that we don't think about very often in the modern world because it's gotten very easy uh, to sort of change money from one for another. But in a medieval universe in which there are many, many currencies circulating and lots of different authorities are issuing their own coins, you actually need to know a lot about coins and currencies to be able to figure out, well, you know, three of these pennies from this person here equal to five pennies from over here, but those are the old pennies, the new ones. So it actually requires a lot of specialist knowledge. And um, Jews actually play an important role in money changing in many of these early towns. And I would imagine if it's like the 18th century, um, people who do that often have a little some 
some basic chemistry equipment. They might have to be testing the metal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're um, assaying it for the purity of the silver. Assaying exactly. for the purity of silver or whatever. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, this is, it's clearer, of course, in the Jewish case, but like, like, just like the citizens of Asti, their family and social networks lead them into the money lending, of course, uh, money exchange, money, all this, is, this is uh, money changing. All this is, uh, very nicely done when you're part of a, sh- a community of shared interest that spans the entire of all of Europe. Absolutely. And it means also that, you know, and, and we certainly see this with the Lombards and the Jewish communities. You know, if you need to make a large loan, you might get a consortium together and you will turn to sort of, you know, your cousins over here and others over here and you'll all sort of pool resources together so it doesn't all fall on one individual. And this is just true um, for the lending that we see across, you know, the, the, the confessional divide here. Um, and I should, but, you know, they do start to engage money lending, um, as, as obviously you've guessed, Jewish communities and, and in the 12th century. Um, again, it depends where, uh, you know, in, in England it starts to pick up, in France it starts to pick up. In Germany, it doesn't seem to be as important until a little bit later. Um, and there's good reason for that. Like, you can make a lot of money in lending when... If you're in money changing and you're not making your the money that you're, you know go to work as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, my goodness. I mean, why, why even be in business for anything? I mean, and especially it's an, a logical follow on, especially, you know, if, if, you know, for a lot of uh, Christian uh, sort of merchants who might do well, um, they might be inclined eventually to plow their capital into landed property. And this is in fact what happens with a lot of the Lombards, in Northern Italy, when they get rich enough, they go back home um, and they buy land, they buy this as a title, and they become local aristocrats. Um, but that's obviously not an option for medieval Jews. Um, uh, and and and, well, and but, but but you said some people and some Jews in the south of in the south, southern Europe still do own land, right? So they? so so eventually, what? Um, but for the ones in the north, let's say, you know, you've got yeah, like they can't, you, do, that. You, you, they can't right. do that, and you've got excess um, capital. You know, let's say you've been sort of building up some cash reserves. So you know, you might buy a, other houses in the town. But one of the problems with uh, sort of land holdings um, is that, you know, if you feel at all like you're a precarious minority, um, and even these Jews who are being welcomed into these communities are often aware that like things, bad things have happened elsewhere, they might happen again. Um, you know, you it, it, it's helpful to have your wealth in somewhat more liquid form. Uh, and the same is true, in fact, for the Lombards in the period that they're actually engaging in their lending. Um, for the most part, they want to keep their capital as liquid as possible. They don't want to be sort of plowing it into sort of local houses because they might, in fact, be expelled, um, as they often are. And you want to be able to sort of gather it as quickly as you can and sort of, you know, hide it out of there. Um, you know, take the pawns, the pawns if you need to and 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 and, and run off. So, um, so since it's risky to plow excess capital into land holdings, um, that drives people to sort of say, well, I've got some spare cash here. I'll do some money lending. And again, many of the people who engage money lending, many of the Jews who engage money lending in the 12th century and 13th century, they're not doing it exclusively. You know, they're doing lots of things on the side, um, but if they have some spare capital, they are. And of course, over time, there are Jews who begin really specializing in money lending. But even those, even though the records that we have of, you know, really important Jewish money lenders like Aaron of York in England, they're also engaged in all sorts of other commercial activities as well. And the same is true even for the Lombards, who although they're sort of defined often as professional money lenders, they're doing lots of other economic activities Sort of whenever things come up along the way, and if 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 money lending seems a bit dubious in a moment, oh, they switch and they're suddenly involved in the grain trade. So there's a lot of flexibility, and it's often hard to tell because the records. I mean, this is the Middle Ages. The records often just aren't there. We get snapshots of what someone's doing in a particular moment in time, but very rarely a comprehensive view of their overall activity. So it's piecing together a puzzle. 
One last foundational question. Um, we've been uh, just before we could get to the actual argument <laughs> of the book, uh, and that's usury. We sa- you said in the little, the lovely little uh, quote I used from you. Uh, you talk about the change from eleven hundred to fourteen, thirteen hundred, mm-hmm. um, and um, isn't usury always bad? Obviously not. So, what at the beginning of this is usury? And sure. <laughs> just let's let's set the level there, as it were. Sure. So, um, you know, the distinction between sort of, let's say, interest and usury is always at what point does interest become illicit? So in a world in which all interest would be illicit, then all interest would be usurious. Um, but in modern America, of course, we have usury defined essentially as excess levels of interest. And even there, what that is depends on where you are in America, um, what sort of business you're running, uh, which by pawn shops can in fact charge rates of interest that would be usurious for individual borrowers, um, uh, sort of a person-to-person borrowing. Um, So the definition of what usury is is always sort of contested. And in the Old Testament, uh, which obviously plays an important role in shaping Christian ideas about uh, lending and interest, um, as well as Jewish ideas, um, in the Old Testament, there are various conflicting statements. Um, And at the very least, it's clear that sort of you're not supposed to charge interest to your family or to the poor, and that that would sort of count as usury. Um, but there seems to be, from some of the statements in the Old Testament, that sort of you know, lending otherwise is perfectly fine, um, or lending within limits might be fine. And then the New Testament is also conflicting. Um, Jesus, for instance, has the parable of the talents, in which he gets, you know, the, the master returns and gets very cranky um, at the servant who just buried the money in the ground, instead of, in fact, um, sort of lending it out and having it multiply. And there, so there's an alternate sort of possible history here where, um, Christianity didn't have to develop a usury doctrine that was very con- sort of um, strongly condemning of all interest. Um, but it does for a set of complicated reasons, partly because it inherits a Roman tradition that banned uh, usury, banned interest of up 12%. Um, and it becomes to be forbidden to clerics uh, from very early as of Christianity, from the Council of Nicaea onwards, which is about 325, it comes to be forbidden to clerics to lend uh, at any sort of interest. The view is basically, if you are a cleric, you should not be interested in earthly gain. Um, any sort of interest suggests sort of, you know, some sort of greed or avarice that you're seeking to profit from somebody else's need. So it's forbidden to clerics. Now, in the Byzantine East, in the, in the, in the Byzantine world, essentially it sticks that way, that sort of um, only clerics are ever forbidden from taking interest. There's no strong sort of full-on usury prohibition um, in Eastern Christianity um, and in the Eastern Roman Empire down to kind of the fall of the Byzantine in 1453. In the West, however, what we start to see around 1100 is a shift in which a um, the usury ban that really had sort of focused on clerics begins to be applied to all the laity as well, um, to anybody. And, and there's a shift that we see where, you know, if you just think that, you know, lending a, an interest above some level is a sin, uh, okay, then fine, you did bad, you go atone for it, you go to confessional, you know, and you say, you know, I, I was greedy and I asked for, you know, money back on the money that I lent to my friend who was in need. Um, I sinned. And so as long as it's a sin, like a personal sin, um, then it sort of, it, it, it doesn't really matter if you're a Christian um, or if you're Jewish, right? Because the views of the church is like, who cares if the Jews are sinning? Um, it's, it's not our business. They can do whatever they want. Like, you know, it's their souls to worry about. They're already damned or whatever. But starting in the 12th century, some theologians in Paris 
get new ideas about usury, that the problem with usury isn't just that it's a threat to an individual, that it's a threat to society, um, that it is dangerous and damaging to all of society, that sort of it, it has a corrosive effect on interpersonal relations. It has a corrosive effect on economic life. There's no idea that this can, in fact, be generative. It has all seemed to be destructive and consumptive, that you are taking money away from somebody else. You are destroying what would otherwise be productive use of wealth. So this is it is fascinating that just at the moment where credits and banking instruments are being developed in northern Italy and then in throughout Western Europe in order to spur the medieval economic boom. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, a bunch simultaneously, of simultaneously, exactly. <laughs> which is not now. To think about it, it's probably not an accident. Exactly, it is not uh, an accident. This know, is very much a reaction they, of they see change. it going on around them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm thinking about. We'll, we'll talk about brief about the Council of Lyon, where the deadliest council mm-hmm. that kills off both Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure. <laughs> um, if they are everywhere, they've certainly see the uh, the commercial economy around them. They can't be blind to it. Uh, Bonaventure certainly does, um, but yet. But yeah, right. And they're very much aware of this, uh, and many of them, as 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 often happens in times of change, there are people who are much more comfortable with the way things were before, and who respond to new developments by trying to sort of to block them, bar them, as opposed to trying to understand them. You know, we we are, we are well familiar with this phenomenon in our own world. It is certainly true in the 12th century as well, and. So a, a, a very developed theory of usury and why it is sort of pernicious develops. And it's really focused uh, in northern France at the University of Paris. It starts spreading out from there and it begins sort of trickling into other parts of Europe. But it's important to remember that throughout all of the 12th century, most of the 13th, in most places in Europe, it was permitted by secular law for Christians to engage in sort of moderate lending. Um, and again, there's some fluctuations here and there. So that the church might say this is a sin. The church might say it's forbidden. You have to do penance for it. But the state allows it. And what that means is that you actually have very conflicting definitions of what usury might be depending on who you're talking to, depending on what jurisdiction you're living in, depending on who you are. What is usurious for a Christian in 13th century England is not the same as what might be usurious for a Jew. What is usurious for a Christian walking into the confessional is not the same as what might be usurious for a Christian who is you know, um, being considered for uh, in, in some sort of secular court in Italy or in Germany or in northern Spain. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and contestation. And as I argue in the book, that means that usury is really in the eye of the beholder. And who gets called a usurer is in the eye of the beholder. It's not some sort of you have done X, ergo you're a usurer. It is a relational uh, accusation. You know, I see you as a user, and often that's related to your social status or our relationship or a distance. Um, it might be confession, it might be because you're Jewish and I'm Christian. It might be because um, you are a foreigner and I'm a local. It might be because I just really don't like you um, or, you know, you beat up my cousin. Uh, but, you know, the idea that sort of you're a user, it's not like there's some hard and fast line um, that suddenly makes right. them a user. Um, one last thing. When we're talking about this, we're not talking about the big banks. We're not talking about the Bardi and the Peruzzi and the Riccardi? Riccardi, right. These large Italian banking firms, um, they interestingly, they, they often do get attacked as being usurers by those who don't like them. So there's plenty of critics of these banks um, in the 13th century and the 14th, and then in the 15th with their successors, the Medici and onwards, who say, like, what you are doing is usury. Um, 
And the reason that they get around it is because they have sort of formal mechanisms that skirt the church's laws on what sorts of contracts are forbidden. And so they're able to engage in practices that essentially are sort of technically licit, even if in fact they often have the same results as, you know, sort of much simpler forms of money lending, which is that, you know, I give you a loan and then um, I get interest back. Uh, they just have elaborate ways around this. And so there certainly are um, those who are accusing them of being usurers. And we certainly see it in the restitution that they're making on their deathbeds when they will leave very large sums and say, you know, if anything I have done, in fact, is usurious, you know, give all this to the church. And you know, the reason that Florence is beautiful is because all these people gave so much money um, to build churches uh, to atone for their sins in their lifetimes. But, they're, but, they're, they're, but they can skirt it uh, through sort of technical feats. One last thing. I mean, just you know, here, 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 I don't, don't know if this is your argument, but it struck me as a very nice point, and you write, to trace the arguments that made such expulsions legitimate in the eyes of contemporaries is to understand the circumstances that made them possible. I think that's a, I suspect that's a nice bit of historical thinking. Uh, but uh, but you tell me, what did you mean by it? Because um, I think that's a very, I think I, I read that, oh, I said you could write a whole bunch of books based on that idea. I worked so hard on that sentence. In fact, I, in fact I'll read it again just for the listeners. You know, sort <laughs> okay. of, you know, to, basically, that to understand what makes expulsions legitimate and as a contemporaries is to understand the circumstances that made them possible. Um, it is easy to imagine the Middle Ages as a kind of like lawless era which sort of people are like running around and bludgeoning people with maces when they aren't sort of just like flagellating themselves for their sins. And, and, and a lot of sort of movies reinforce the ideas of kind of the Middle Ages as just this sort of chaotic lawless period. Um, in fact, uh, people in the Middle Ages were very, very concerned about law and legality. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of the Middle Ages is as a world of privilege and exemption. Um, you know, a world where people were very concerned about what you can ask others to do um, and what others cannot ask you to do. And people were very sensitive to this all the way up from sort of peasants all the way up to kind of, you know, popes. And I think that's really important to understand in thinking about expulsion, um, because one of the things that struck me when I began reading lots of expulsion orders and accounts of expulsions uh, of any sort, not just usurers uh, and not just Jews, but of all kinds, is how often they invoked law. And it's not because they were actually taking place in sort of courtrooms. Um, it's because the rhetoric by which these sorts of actions were justified were often was often sort of framed in legal terms. And when I started this project, when I started writing this book, um, I thought of myself as an economic historian. And I really, in fact, thought that I was going to explore the consequences of expulsions of Jews and foreigners on local economies. Um, I was interested in, in the economic question. Um, but I just kept on running up against law and legality in the texts that I found. Um, you know, references to, you know, we're expelling you because, you know, laws have been broken um, or because we are complying with some sort of law. And along the way, I ended up becoming a legal historian to try to make sense of that. And, you know, you can be cynical about the, this rhetoric and you can say it's all just window dressing. It's all just sort of, you know, masking uh, baser motives. It's just greed underlying it. And they need to find some sort of, you know, sort of fancy cover that makes it acceptable. Um, but even if that's true, I think it's interesting to say, okay, why this particular legal argument instead of that one? Why law instead of some appeal to religion or the common good? Um, and then why usury? Why would expulsion um, and law get tied up around sort of the question of usury? Why should usury be punished with expulsion and how does law fit into that? And that is what ended up driving me to explore sort of the problems in this book. 
So let's talk about expulsion, as you argue, as a novel, regal, governmental punishment. Mm -hmm. And I think it gets down to expulsion to versus expulsion from. Would that be, would that, would that capture it? Yeah, there's, so, you know, when the, the term expulsion is obviously pretty vague, um, you know, and it's one of the reasons that I was worried about it having it in the title in the book. Um, and it, the subtitle ends up being mass expulsion, which is kind of misleading because the, the term mass expulsion appears like once or twice in the rest of the book. Um, but just expulsion, the subtitle is sort of seen as too vague. And so um, what, what, one of the things that I got interested in when I began this was, okay, there's, there's individual expulsions. Right. You sort of you banish someone, you exile someone, you don't like your political opponent and you say, you know, OK, you know, leave England and go off somewhere or um, you banish a criminal and say, you know, you need to sort of leave the town gates by sunset or and so there's various forms of individual um, banishment. And those sorts of individual expulsions are common pretty much to most all societies that we know of, all human societies everywhere, um, use these sorts of penalties. I mean, I, I've done a lot of reading anthropology and comparative punishment in global history. That's widespread. Um, and, but there's a, it goes back to Adam and Eve, of course, in the Christian tradition. I mean, like, like the foundational moment of human history is Adam and Eve being expelled and the Jew, from- and the Jewish tradition. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, right. So, so you know, and, and it's true, obviously, in Islam as well. So the foundational yeah. moment for- um, in you know the, the three great monthly traditions is an act of individual banishment. Yeah, I'd say the foundational moment of human history is right. expulsion. Expulsion, right? So which it goes back, pretty, which is a pretty powerful. It's a pretty powerful idea at the heart of our cultures. And so we're we're used to thinking about this as I think as a sort of as, as as built into the fabric of human societies. But what's interesting is that expelling groups, um, sort of as a group, you know, I'm expelling all the people from sort of class A or all the people who believe X is relatively unusual in human history. Um, and this had never occurred to me until I read this great article written 30 years ago by an Israeli historian, Ben Kedar, called Expulsion as an Issue of World History. And he pointed out that, you know, in the ancient world and in most empires, if you didn't like a group, um, you didn't expel them from your empire. You moved them around within your empire. So, you know, think about, obviously, um, in ancient Judea, when 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 the people of Israel get sort of picked up and moved, they aren't kicked out of the empire um, of the Babylonians. They're just relocated within it. Um, and this is standard policy in the Neo-Assyrian Empire. It's standard policy under the Babylonians. Um, it happens even under the Romans. It happens under the Byzantines, the Ottomans. Um, it is part of sort of imperial logic um, that very much dominates Stalin. how rulers. Stalin's Russia. Exactly, Russia as well. Um, uh, so it also happens, of course, in 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 China and elsewhere. So so these relocations of groups. Um, is very much the pattern in most of human history in most parts of the world. But what starts to happen at the very end of the Roman Empire, um, and, and it's actually running through the Roman history, there's there's occasional things where we say, okay, you have to leave the precincts of the city. Um, so, you know, you're somehow contaminating the presence. Let's say you are, you know, cult worshippers or something. But again, you never leave the Roman Empire. Towards the very end of the Roman Empire, they start saying heretics, you need to leave the boundaries of the empire. Um, and it's some of the first cases that we have of authorities actually driving out groups beyond the boundaries of their control. And then it sort of fades into abeyance back in the early Middle Ages. And then it starts to pick up again in the 11th century, first with heretics and then with other groups. We start to see many different groups over the course of the Middle Ages um, who are being expelled from territory. So instead of being sort of sent, you know, your you know, bad monk, um, you know, go to your cell or um, bad opponent, go be locked up in a monastery, like a prison. Um, this is now saying, you know, bad group, you have to leave. I don't care where you go. You just have to leave. 
And that becomes sort of, a, as I argue in the book, um, a, 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 almost a default technology of, um, of sort of how governments work by the end of the Middle Ages. They sort of take it for granted that you can do this to groups. And ever since, of course, in the West, um, we've often done this to groups we don't like, and it's spread to the rest of the world. But it's not, in fact, embedded in human societies of all kinds. It's, it's a development. You can see how this uh, operates in what's called modern anti-Semitism. Um, there is a body politic. There is something within it that is contaminating the body politic. It gets really body oriented mm-hmm. um, very quickly, like poisoning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, that's why poisoning images and metaphors or fears are always part of this. And we must expel that contamination from the body politic. But you make clear to me is it didn't start with the Jews. Um, that there is there this is being used for multiple groups. Right, um, there are there are lepers um, and prostitutes, uh, and the end of the Middle Ages we have beggars and vagabonds as well being expelled. We have lots of expulsions of foreigners as well, um, where they sort of say, you know, you must leave our our domains. Um, and so, I got interested. In, well, you know, what causes people to start normalizing a practice that had previously been really unusual? And it seemed that um, because Jews and users end up being so frequently expelled in so many places in Europe over the course of the Middle Ages. That seemed like an interesting case to explore. Um, but there's certainly lots more work to be done to figure out, like, how does this become so widespread? So let's look at England and France. I mean, it's kind of uh, it's like a medievalist joke. After all this interesting talk about Italy and other places, we end up talking once again <laughs> no, about England and south, France. southern England and northern France. But, um, but let's do that anyway. Um, and... Uh, do they, they both are, you know, they can proudly say that they're innovators in mass, in, in the, mass in expulsion, the, exactly. Mass expulsion, yeah. <laughs> um, so do they do it independently? Do they learn from one another? How does the, where, who, who's first? So this really is a case of sort of two different sort of political communities um, experimenting at almost the same time, according to very different logics and resulting in the same phenomenon um, of expulsion. And by the end, there's some convergence. Let me kind of walk through how I argue sure. that this this happens. Um, but I do want to say again, like I did not start off this book expecting to work in England and France. Like I was a good <laughs> Italianist. Um, and then and then sort of I kept on following my people where they went and all of a sudden here I am in England and France. Um, uh, so um, in England, you know, and it's partly helped by geography that you have a coastline that neatly delineates the boundaries of sort of much of the kingdom. Um, there is a tradition of expelling individuals from the realm. We have lots of archbishops of Canterbury being driven into exile. We have criminals who can use a rather weird process called abjuration, where instead of being punished in England, you can essentially flee to the continent. Um, uh, I mean, well, actually flee the realm, but essentially it usually means uh, flee to the continent. And so there is a tradition of expelling individuals, and there's an apparatus almost of how the government actually makes that happen. You know, for the abjuration, you can go to one of these ports and et cetera, et cetera. And there also comes to be, starting around the early 13th century, um, a tradition of expelling foreign merchants at times of political crisis. And this actually hasn't received much attention uh, by scholars of medieval English history. And I think it's because it becomes so normal so quickly that nobody realizes that it was sort of somewhat unusual compared to what's happening elsewhere in Europe. Um, but there's a tradition in which, you know, if, if things get so rough between England and Flanders and the English kings will say, okay, you know, all Flemish merchants um, are ordered to leave the realm. Um, and if they don't, you know, their persons will be thrown into jail and their property will be confiscated. And so that also begins developing um, in the early 13th century and continues right on um, into the later Middle Ages. 
And then alongside this, we start to find um, a, a new discourse about expelling Jews, um, but it's always framed at an individual level. Um, so the king will levy a new tax on Jews, and he'll say, you know, it's an arbitrary tax. And he'll say any Jews who are too poor to pay or who refuse to pay um, are to be sort of expelled from the realm. And the goal here obviously is not to expel Jewish communities. The goal, in fact, um, is to encourage Jewish communities to pay. Um, the presumption being that nobody will want to be expelled from the realm, um, and therefore they will do whatever they can to actually meet my fiscal demands. Um, but it means that sort of alongside these collective expulsions of foreigners, there is sort of emerging a tradition of kind of individual threats of expulsion against Jews. And then um, some of this starts to come together in about the, the 1230s when Henry III, who was a very long reigning king, that most people never heard of, even though he's actually one of the longest reigning English monarchs. He's the son of kind of bad King John, who gets a lot more press. Though he reigned not, not a friend of the podcast. No, exactly. So, <laughs> so, so, so King Henry III, um, he has some pretty expensive tastes. He basically builds Westminster Abbey, um, and he gets involved in a lot of political dealings uh, on the continent. And this ends up leading to all sorts of sort of tumult into the birth of the English parliament, etc. And there's, rebe there's rebellions and revolts. But basically the point is that he needs money a lot. Um, and so he he squeezes the Jews of the realm whenever he can. But he also realizes that there's a lot of Italian merchants who are engaging in various forms of credit activities, um, sometimes on behalf of the papacy, sometimes on behalf of uh, other sort of important local ecclesiastical institutions. And they are based in various parts of southern England, and they're rich. And so he uh, says to them, um, he throws, throws many of them in jail at one point and says, like, I think, you know, I hear rumors that you're, you know, lending at usury and that's forbidden. Um, and, and then so basically sort of pay up. And, you know, we actually trace because the records from England are so, are so phenomenal. Um, we can actually track payments um, into sort of the royal accounts and see as individual firms, individual communities of Italian sort of merchant money lenders, essentially like, okay, like I'll pay up to get out of jail. Here's my fine. <laughs> Um, and so there are times over the next 30 I, years. I just want to underline the fact that the Italians are paying the English to <laughs> the bribe. Exactly. You know, it's the other way around. Exactly. Other way yeah, around. Yeah. And so we have, we have these, these, these cases in which um, the king begins threatening them with expulsion if they don't pay up. And as a result, by the time we get to the 1260s, there's actually a pretty robust tradition of the king saying, oh, you're engaging in usury. Um, I'm going to expel you and then paying up. There are occasion times in which he says, um, somewhat sort of ironically, um, uh, give me money or I'll expel you. Um, and of course, these are the same people that he's been accusing of having illicit sorts of money just a few years before. But so sometimes the money is tainted. Sometimes he just wants it. Um, whatever it is, um, in England, they get used to kind of expelling foreigners um, when they just won't pay up. And there's also situations, as I said, about Jews as individuals being threatened with expulsion if they won't pay up. So that's happening in England. Things are different in France, uh, and that's partly, as I argue, because of the importance of the University of Paris. Um, unfortunately, like professors get a really bad rap in my book. They're the ones who come up with all these terrible ideas that sort of give birth to mass expulsion. Um, because it's always, been, it's always been that way. Let's just. I know it's so unfortunate. It makes me request, you know, sort of rethink my whole profession. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I made all the wrong mistakes. Here I am continuing this tradition. No, so in France, uh, there is a tradition in which. Uh, the University of Paris, the theologians who are there get very concerned about usury. And as I suggested, um, they're very much animated by this idea that usury is somehow destructive and damaging. And, and most of their concern is aimed at Christians. 
which is something we often forget when we're talking about medieval usury, that the vast majority of rhetoric against usurers is in fact aimed against Christians, not Jews. Um, but some of it certainly is being wielded against Jews who are coming to be seen as archetypal usurers, um, even when they may not in fact be engaging in usury. It starts to get sort of very blurry that sort of Jews come to be figures of avarice and whatever they're doing economically is seen to be usurious, often if it doesn't even involve money lending. It's just sort of this, this rhetorical trope that's already emerging around 1200 in Northern France. And so there's this discourse here that's really powerful, that usury is destructive. Um, and, and, you know, gradually the rulers of France start to hear about this. You know, they have confessors, they have, they're attending occasional sermons. Um, these new currents of ideas are, are shaping the ideas of people who are in their circles of officials. So they're coming to learn about these ideas as well. This is always the problem of Paris. I mean, that uh, the University of Paris has a very regnal aspect to it. And there's an Absolutely. The kings are very, very much involved. sort of, exactly. And, and, and important and, figures and, are giving consultations to the court. Um, yeah. They're right next door to each other, more, right. or, le more or less. Right. So these new yeah. ideas, there's a pipeline often, a you know, in, yeah. uh, and so this is happening. Um, and then in general, um, you get, you get the, the reign of the King St. Louis. Um, I mean, he's not a saint during his lifetime, but he's made a saint very soon after his death. And he's, he becomes a saint, um, not because he's actually any more pious than Henry III in England. Henry III is just as pious privately, um, but because he makes that piety central to his public actions as king. So it's not just that sort of he goes home to his room at night and sort of is very pious. It's that he actually imbues that piety into his public legislation as king. And so we find him taking very strong action against heretics and trying to sort of purge the kingdom of all sorts of sinfulness, particularly tied up on when he's going on crusade. And he goes on crusade once and it fails. And then he goes on crusade again and he dies. So, you know, Louis' experience of crusading is not great. Um, but his effort to kind of get rid of the kingdom ready for, and get himself ready for crusade and then sort of recover after the first crusade is very much bound up with ideas of purging and purifying himself and the realm of sin and sinfulness. It's really, I mean, and also it's, uh, it, you have to, for crusade, there of course is a great military, but also enormous financial preparations. Enormous financial Every, preparations. Everyone has to be shaken down. Every night basically costs the equivalent, I used to try to, uh, basically a nice S-class Mercedes, you know, um, is the your horse, your suits of armor, your spare horse. It's like buying a supercar. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a $200,000 car. Right. It's a very, right. it's a very, very, very expensive enterprise. And, and, yes. and, it, and, and, as a and result, he's also at it. I mean, he's also purging it spiritually. He's preparing it for a spiritual quest. He wants to get right with God mm -hmm. before he goes off on crusade. And he wants the entire realm to be right with mm -hmm. God. So and certainly when, and then when he gets back and he realizes the crusade failed, oh. it's worse, it's like, right. Like how did this go so wrong? Oh, well, I think we, I think we have an idea. Don't we? Right. You know? <laughs> and so, so he begins, taking action against um, Jewish usurers yep. um, and threatening them with expulsion from the realm if they won't give up usury. Um, and he, en he ends up enforcing that somewhat within his own domain. It never gets enforced within the realm as a whole. And then... Does he, the and also, I would imagine, against other usurers. As right. Well. And then he also applies it to Christian usurers, um, yeah. but only foreigners, interestingly. So yeah. <laughs> this is one of those interesting things where um, when, when he takes action against Christian usurers, um, he only attacks the foreigners. And, and the reason for that is essentially, and he actually says this in a reported quotation to one of his um, uh, associates, um, that basically the church can take care of the Christian usurers, um, the regular ones. Um, you know, they can go and they can do their penance, their confession. Um, I'll punish those for whom I'm responsible, which in the quotation is the Jews. 
Um, but in practice, it's also foreigners, right? Because the foreigners who are who are living in France, who are lending in France, are doing so under the sort of the official protection of the French king. Um, they sort of, you know, in order to be there in many cases, they often have to have licenses or invitations. And in fact, Louis's father had in fact formally given an invitation to um, merchants from Asti to come and set up lending operations in the kingdom. So Louis knows that they're there. His father gave them their initial license. It's getting renewed and it's getting spread in different places as these Asti Danyu are coming. And so as a result, there's an extent to which their sinfulness is redounding to him. Um, that, you know, in, in allowing their usury, that he is somehow sort of abetting that and is somehow sort of guilty himself. So you have some beautiful maps in the book. And there's a really informative uh, two maps next to each other, 1250, 1274, 1275, 1299. And what we see is that after 1275, um, money lending activity seems to like, it doesn't vanish, but damn near vanishes from France. It's really extraordinary. Uh, could you, does this create, and, and where it comes, you could see it going from following the line of trade from Northern Italy through the passes of the Alps, the German passes of the Alps, uh, the Western passes of the Alps, and into the Rhine Valley and then down to the North Sea. So does Louis the Ninth's decision, does he create the the low countries and the Swiss economies is in a way that we know them today. I mean, this is kind of, is, is it just this one decision? Cause you can see that a lot of money follows those little dots. So I really, really wanted to find that when I started because <laughs> I, um, when I, when I first plotted that out, I was like, Oh my gosh, like you can actually, you can, you can, you can literally define the boundaries of the kingdom of France based yes. on where the money lenders are. And they're all on the other side of sort of the boundary. Um, it's extraordinary. And it is absolutely true that sort of this kind of professional Christian money lending drops off for a time in France as a result of Louis and then his son's expulsion orders because he expels these Lombards from his kingdom. Um, I don't end up thinking that it has as much of an impact as I would have hoped um, in the low countries in Burgundy and Switzerland. And it's probably just the numbers. You know, we're talking about, you know, several hundred, maybe a few thousand Italian moneylenders here um, compared to what are already pretty robust and sort of strong credit networks going on in these areas. So the reason that the moneylenders flee there is because these are sort of like lively markets happening. Now, I think they obviously contribute. They play an important role um, as princely bankers in Brabant. Um, they play a very important role as bankers to the Dukes of Burgundy. So certainly they are Im important in generating some of these sort of spectacular, visible luxury wealth that we see. And in facilitating that, and also in facilitating the huge debts that are amassed by some of these princes, um, which they also get blamed for and then expelled for later on. Um, uh, so I don't know how much they end up, you know, being sort of, um, let's say, catalysts for this, but they are certainly um, robustly participating and driving forth uh, this this economic dynamism that we see uh, uh, in in these areas in the later Middle Ages. Um, partly as a result of the fact that they they leave France, they do come back to France in great numbers um, as things settle down. And one of the things that I was trying to do as I was tracking individuals was, you know, okay, does someone leave as a result of expulsion order? Where do they go? Um, when do they come back? And often what ends up happening is that they, if they leave France, for instance, they'll cross just outside of the border. 
um, just where the French king can't get at them. And that way they can still lend to people that they may have been lending to before, but they can sort of be safe from the reach of his royal agents. And that, boys and girls, is how Geneva was founded. <laughs> I guess, I guess, probably, uh, but certainly Strasbourg and other places like that. Yeah. Um, not surprisingly, simply because canon lawyers think usury is bad and write lots of laws about it, legislate these laws, that doesn't mean they're enforced. So we're heading way over time. Uh, but so you could explain basically the distinction between just because the law is on the books doesn't mean it's enforced. Absolutely. So what ends up happening is um, a church council gathers in the late 13th century um, and they take inspiration from St. Louis and they say, in fact, all foreign moneylenders, um, all foreign usurers need to be expelled. This Every Christian like 12, authority. 1274. Exactly. 1274. Sorry. The aforementioned Council of Lyon. Exactly. Deadly, the deadliest council. Um, and so as a result, um, you know, this order gets circulated very broadly um, across Christendom. Um, and there we find it sort of popping up in sort of local statutes, as people say, you know, in pursuance to um, the recent council, the recent order, you know, uh, we order the expulsion of Christian usurers. Um, or actually, sort of usurers, um, but the order doesn't actually say whether it applies to Christians or Jews. Um, it just says foreign usurers. And so, one of the things that the book shows in the second and third parts is how it is that an order that was originally aimed at Italians ends up coming to be wielded against Jews. Um, and there is pushback, and there are interpretive arguments. Um, but by the end um, of the Middle Ages, there's many, many people who believe that this uh, churchwide decree, in fact, requires the expulsion of Jews. Um, but one of the things that struck me as I began exploring the implementation of this decree is that there are lots of people who just never enforce it. Um, they, they, in some cases, they might not know about it. And I spent a lot of time tracking sort of uh, networks really of knowledge. Question. Really like, fascinating question: How a bishop does not know what the pope wants him to do? Right, and and, and you know we have this you know, because we can go to a library, yeah. um, or we can go online and we can look up yeah. you know the laws of the U.S. and see what these things are. Um, or it would arrive in the mail. You'd think right. it'd be arriving in the mail. Right. But of course, you know, it might, even if it arrives, maybe it gets lost. Maybe there's a scribal error. I, I found lots of <laughs> scribal errors as I was going through these texts. In some cases, it say like you expel all usurers instead of just foreigners. So there's these there's scribal instabilities. And then sometimes, you know, it shows up, um, you copy it down, and then your successor comes in and never bothers to look at that. Um, and so what tends to happen is that the only places it ever gets enforced are where somebody has a local interest in enforcing it. Um, either somebody wants to get rid of their debts, or more often, because these, this decree says that any bishop, basically, who doesn't um, enforce this within their own domains is automatically suspended. So anytime you have local sort of clerics who don't like their bishop, they come with like, hey, you, you know what? You're automatically suspended from office. You have no authority here because you didn't expel the local usurers. And those are almost the only times we actually find bishops doing what the Pope had ordered them to do is when someone's threatening them to basically like take away all of their privileges and power. Um, uh, this is the this is the, the perennial peril of middle management. <laughs> exactly. So that was one of the things that surprised me was sort of, you know, trying to track this and who actually enforced it and when did they enforce it and why and seeing, you know, why is it that, you know, the church orders this, it thunders it, it puts in the strongest possible language, strongest possible penalties. And then there's an immediate reaction by a few rulers, England and France. They're very good compliant sons of the church elsewhere. They're kind of bupkis. It's not in anyone's interest to enforce it, uh, especially not in Burgundy. <laughs> I, I mean, they, they, the, the popes keep writing letters to the bishops of Burgundy, be like, you're supposed to enforce this law. And they're like, mm, 
and they, they never repromulgate it further in their own statutes. They're just silent. So it's quite possible that like lots of local municipal authorities, lots of local lords had absolutely no idea that they were required by canon law to expel Lombards from their lands. Um, I, th- I think they had no clue because it just never got transmitted all the way down. Um, it, it shows us that for all our uh, medievalist talk for a hundred years about the bureaucratization of the Middle Ages, uh, about the important ways in which bureaucratic machinery was you know, conceived of and forged and formed and remolded and crafted and got better and better. There were still some gaps. There's a lot of gaps. There's a lot of gaps. <laughs> a lot of unevenness on the ground. <laughs> a lot of unevenness on the ground. Um, let me conclude with uh, something, uh, one last quote from you. You write, expulsion was almost always a political and administrative act with the result of the decision-making processes of authorities rather than a consequence of the relations between money lenders and their neighbors. Um that's kind of audacious, isn't it? I mean, except that you have the evidence on your side, I'm, I'm sure. But because when, I mean, I'm reading that, even after reading the book, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading that thinking, oh my God, this is like, you know, pogroms began for something else. But because what you're saying is, and, and I know this is true from other evidence, um, it's not, it's simply not the neighbors who are ripping the, casting these people out in the street and onto the ship. Yeah, you know, there's, there's no question that we certainly have acts of popular violence against Jews and in some cases against Christian moneylenders um, that, you know, that lead to widespread deaths, that lead to sort of the, the burning down of Jewish communities. Um, uh, but generally what happens in those cases um, is that Jews are sort of still allowed back because the authorities who are protecting them sort of say, you know, no, let's go after the malefactors and we'll restore you. So there's partly a definitional game here that sort of in order to expulsion happen, it, someone has to actually approve the expulsion and say you must leave. So it's almost always in that sense, governmental. But what I wanted to do um, with the conclusion there was essentially make the point that for a lot of medieval historians who've been looking at the uh, persecution um, and expensive persecution in in the Middle Ages, um, we bundle up all sorts of different experiences, you know, of violence, of pogroms, of expulsion, of uh, discriminatory regulations, and we bundle them all together. And I wanted to sort of say that, well, in fact, there can be something learned if we tease these things apart. Um, and if we look at them as different phenomena, let me just say, so this is, I mean, the book that was, you know, everyone was reading. I'm no, I know you read it. I read it. Evidently is formation, Bob Moore's formation of a persecuting society. Um, and, and so, but that, and uh, you know, what I, I realized you, you, you made this point very well to me in the course of this book, that what was, what was thrilling about Moore was that he put lepers and, you know, heretics and money, all Jews, all together, and we saw the ways in which society persecuted them. But you're saying, uh, 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 we, you know, we've, that's that's good. That's been interesting. But now we need to go back and look at dif- the differences in context for each of those groups. Right, and also to say, okay, you know, if we only look for the groups that we think of as being victims, yep. Um, you know, again, lepers, um, those accused of sort of besotomy, um, Jews, yep. heretics. Um, then we miss something by not taking the attitudes of officials and saying, okay, well, who did they see in their sights? So, you know, um, in this case, it might include rich Italian bankers who we don't ordinarily have much sympathy for, um, but they're being lumped in the same category often as Jews for the purposes of expulsion. And so I thought, well, you know, if we use the framework of a penalty um, rather than the framework of who's being persecuted, what do we see? Um, And I think we see something different than when we are only looking at persecution as we conventionally understand it. Um, And we're instead trying to understand the logics that in fact made a very powerful tool of persecution um, become so widespread in medieval Europe. 
And it's amazing as you conclude in the end also to consider this and see how fast it all happened, uh, how quickly this became de rigueur. Yeah, like one century, it goes from being almost unknown to being widely practiced across much of Europe, uh, which is pretty terrifying. And yet, uh, it turns out, not unprecedented. Uh, (laughs) Such things have continued to happen. My guest today has been Rowan Doran. His new book is No Return, Jews, Christian Usurers, and the Spread of Mass Expulsion in Medieval Europe. Rowan, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 